Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. We took a pause for a couple of weeks while I was on vacation, but we're going to continue. And over the next couple of weeks, wind down our series called The Crown, where we're walking through uh, first and second Samuel, and um, I want to focus kind of, last time I shared this, we were talking about, you know, David's sin with Bathsheba. Everyone knows about that. We went into detail about that and talked a little bit about the, first, can I pause for a Who bought the cake? Oh, wow, that is super good. That is super good. It's not really cool that you guys are just eating it in front of me, but that's all right. Um, yeah, I, I just took a fork full, and I was like, wow, this is really good. Then I had to come up here. Anyway. Talking about the consequences of David's sin, how it impacted his family, and, and I'm going to jump back to that. Um, I'm going to put all the verses today up on the screen for the sake of time, but if you want to follow along, turn to 2 Samuel. Uh, we're going to start in 12 and go all the way to, I think, 15. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. That's Bathsheba. This is what God sent Nathan the prophet to tell David. Um, that the sword, not meaning, you know, a physical sword, because that would be cool if you had one mounted, but basically what the sword brings, death. Uh, always going to be in your house, and it's specifically because not just, it is because of what he did with Bathsheba, but it was because his sin against the Lord, because God said, because you despised me. Uh, and then he tells them this, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you for your very eyes. I will take your wives Give them the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And it's not like a Cinemax TV show, because that's what it sounds like. But it's physically God saying, hey, the consequences of your sin, it's not just spiritual consequences, there are physical consequences. And he says, I'm go it's going to happen out of your own household, which for David meant his family members. He says, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Now, there's been a lot of tragedy and the news stuff going on. How many people have used the word calamity in the last six months? It figures. Any, <laughs> how many have used it in the last, like, year or two? Okay. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the Bible has so many, not so much translations, but versions, because language is progressive. And if you were to say to your children, wow, I just got home and there was so much calamity at work, probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. Not a common word. Uh, a lot of versions uh, translate that word calamity into evil. Uh, it literally uh, means that wickedness or adversity or just misery, pain, and turmoil, which is what God is saying is going to come out of your house. And, and we'll, next week we'll talk about the, the getting to your wives and, and, and sleeping on the roof. But that whole thing, that whole series of events actually came to fruition, and it started with one of David's sons. And we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago, so I'm only going to highlight it. That first consequence, physical consequence, the child that was born to David and Bathsheba died, and, and we say that's harsh. That child went to heaven and was spared a lot of the issues and turmoil and all that stuff that came out of the rest um, of David's house, uh, and first and foremost, the first thing that we're told in the Bible is that David, who had multiple wives, Bathsheba was only one, had a son named Amnon, and from a different wife, he had a daughter named Tamar, 
and Amnon raped his half-sister, Tamar. Now, Tamar, eventually, as a result of that, kind of goes in the seclusion, never leaves her house. That, that's the last we hear from her in the Bible. And the Bible tells us she went into her house, became a recluse. She was just so humiliated. And, and we don't know, you know, depression, exact, what mental impact that had on her. But we do know it caused her to say, never trusting people again. Never going out again. But then she had a brother named Absalom. And Absalom and Tamar shared the same mother and the same father. And Absalom said, I'm going to get revenge. So in, um, which is what we're going to kind of walk through. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, this is what we read. But Jonadab, son of Shimea, David's brother, said, My Lord should not think that they killed all the princes. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's express intention ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. And what, what uh, Absalom did is he said, hey, I want to have a big party. And he went to David and he said, I want all of the princes, which is what his children, you know, heirs to the throne were called. I want all of them to come. I want all the royals to come. We're going to have this big party. When they got to the party, Absalom killed Amnon. And, of course, everyone else fled. But then word got back that, oh, you know, Absalom's trying to take over the throne and kill all the people. But then someone came and said, nope, this wasn't about killing all the people. This wasn't about trying to take over the throne. This was about what has been boiling inside of Absalom ever since his sister was raped. And we're led to believe this is weeks, months, I don't know if it's years, but some time has passed. And he didn't get any resolution. And we don't read about David going to either one of the family members and saying, hey, we got to work this out. This is wrong. David doesn't step in. And so that kind of boils up in Absalom until he decides, you know what? I'm just going to take care of this myself. So Absalom flees, and he spends three years separated from David because he's afraid. I just killed, you know, one, it's, it's, it's a legal matter. I committed murder. You know, we're in a society where that's not good. Two... I just took revenge on someone. Someone might take revenge on me. So he leaves, heads to another country, stays there for three years. Now, here's the thing. David, again, doesn't take any action. He's the king. It's his son. He doesn't go after him. Now, which do you think God prefers, just in general? When there are people who do wrong things to us, or they make us mad, or they even sin against us, or even they break the law, which do you think God prefers? Option A. We just leave those people alone. We want nothing to do with them. We'll just let those people be. Good thing they're, they're, they're not in our communities. Or option B, we got to go to those people because they're hurting. They need help. And they need the love of God as well. So which do you think, not just this, but in general, God prefers? Don't raise your hand because I don't want you to be embarrassed when you're wrong. Option A you know, leave those people alone. Good thing they're heading away. We want nothing to do with them. Or option B, we got to go to those people and share the love of Christ with them. Now, option A, definitely going to make our lives better and easier, drama-free. We don't have to deal with these people with issues who are doing wrong things. But option B makes us more like God and more like Christ. So if you chose... Option A, nothing wrong with that. You're just wrong. 
If you chose option B, that's the one that makes us more like Christ. That's the one that God wants us to do. Whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be just people in a community who makes mistakes. So what Joab does, who's the general of David in charge of his military, he sends a woman in and says, hey, go tell David this story. And I don't know if you guys remember, uh, but when, when David sinned with Bathsheba, God sent Nathan in, and Nathan told him this story. He didn't say, you messed up, you're wrong. He told him this story and gave him an example. And David said, wow, that's wrong. And then Nathan said, yeah, that's you. So Joab does the same thing. He sends this woman in and says, go tell David this story. you got to say it just like this. Tell him that there were these two sons of yours, and they got into a fight, and one son killed the other son. And then tell him that now the whole village wants to seek justice, and they want the head of the son who survived because he committed murder. And she goes in, and she tells this to David, and David says, don't worry about it. I will intercede on your behalf. I'm the king. I can just like, you know, a governor today could pardon someone who did something wrong. He says, I'm the king. I will pardon him. I, I sense that this was not an intentional, like, he's a bad kid who wants to, to kill everyone, so I'll pardon him. And she says, but, you know, there's these legal things and there's a religious thing, and there's this thing called the avenger of blood where the person who wants to seek revenge can... And God says, that's okay, because life for a life. David says, I will take care of it and issue an order so that none of that happens. Your son's going to be okay. So he says, go home. I'm going to issue an order on your behalf. Nothing's going to happen to your son. Then after this conversation, she says, why then? Have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. So she says, hey, that's great. If you're willing to do this for me, why aren't you willing to do it for your son? Because it's the exact same circumstance. Yes, he killed somebody. And yes, it was a family member but shouldn't you be reconciled to your son? Just like you were about to uh, step in and reconcile our entire village to my son, can't you step in and reconcile the people of God of Israel to your son? You have the authority and the power to step in and say, hey, it's forgiven. You're not going to go to jail. We're still going to be family. You're still a child of God. You're still a person of God. And then, this is, this, is, this is where it gets a little bit more harsh. The king said to Job, very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Because he finds out, he, he asks her, he says, let me, let me just make sure, is this coming from you? Because I sense this is something that Joab would do. And she said, yeah, Joab said me. So the king said to Joab, go bring him back. But Joab went to Geshur. He brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. So David took some action, but he didn't, he didn't resolve the overarching issue. But yeah, you know, there's this big thing. You just killed somebody, and that has it. But also, he didn't reconcile himself to his son. 
He didn't make things right between them. And when, uh, when we, we read the rest of this story, we find out three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, after his sister, whom he avenged. And she became a beautiful woman. But then we find out Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Three years in exile, away from family, away from friends, away from home. Two years at home, but we can't talk to each other. We're not going to look at each other. We're not going to relate to one another. We're not going to make this right. So yeah, he came home, but he never really got to come home, so to speak. And, and again, David took action, but he didn't reconcile it. He didn't resolve the overarching problem. And there's a big difference between those because a resolution means no longer an issue. But the people involved, they might still have an issue with each other. So for those of you who've ever been on a project with a coworker and you're not getting along, hey, we got the project done, right? We were able to work together. We resolved it, got the project done. Never working with you again. For family members, hey, yeah, we were at the family reunion and we made it through without, like, killing one another, smacking one another. Don't want to hear from you again until the next family reunion or until Aunt Bertha dies. And then we'll fight over her jewelry. All of these type of things where, hey, we, we made it through this, but the relationship, we still have an issue. Reconciliation is where there's no longer an issue, period. The problem is not only resolved, but the differences between us are resolved as well. Uh, the biblical term literally means to atone or purge out or to pardon, but it addresses not just the problem, it also addresses the people and brings them back into relationship with one another. And because of the lack of reconciliation, because David never stepped in and said, hey, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but we're family and we're going to try. Because David never stepped in and said, yes, you know what? I should have acknowledged, and, and, and the same way I didn't address you, I should have addressed Amnon, and maybe if I had, you never would have felt the need that you had to kill him and take it into your own hands. David never stepped in and said anything. And because he didn't, the same anger that built up in Absalom that made him say, I got to avenge my sister, the same anger that built up in him uh, and frustration uh, that made him, like, kill his half-brother, built up in him, remember, five years, harboring anger, frustration, maybe a little bit of hatred, maybe resentment, five years, and it came to a head, and he put this plan in place. Now, not against uh, to revenge his sister, but to take it out on his father, to where he said, yeah, you know what? I, I'm just the one who needs to be king. So back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run around him. So he provided himself with an entourage of people. And he would go parading through the city so people would see him and be like, yeah, that's the, that's the prince. Yeah, he's one of the heirs to the throne. But then he would also get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, he would call out and say, what town are you from? And they'd say, I'm from Israel. But what he was doing was basically, 
And, and we have the same process here. When someone has an issue, uh, they can go to the magistrate or they can go uh, call your congressman. Or if it's a big issue, uh, you know, you send a letter to the president or some official. And they have the same process. In town, smaller issues resolved by a local official. But if it was a big problem, just like the woman who showed up and said, hey, I need you to reconcile my, king, my, my son and pardon him, even though she was telling a story, uh, people would come and bring heavy-weighted issues to the king. And when they showed up, Absalom would be sitting at the gate, and he would say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you, even though David was sitting inside waiting to hear them. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, Everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that they would get justice. This is the exact same thing. Again, doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian, whatever. This is the exact same thing you hear from every single politician. Hey, when I get in office, I pledge to do A, B, and C that isn't being done now. Right? That, that's, that's why people want to elect them. They go out to town halls. They do all these things. In this case, instead of going out to town halls, people would come to the palace, and he would stand there and say, hey, no one's going to take care of your issues, but if I were king, you could get justice. Now, that's a politician thing, but also this is a bigger thing because he was literally saying, hey, the one who God appointed to hear and resolve and lead you, he's not good enough. I'm better. I'm the person who can give you justice. And then... Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Enough people were behind him. Enough people were walking around saying, yeah, man, I wish, wish Absalom were king. I could have got this issue resolved. Wish Absalom were king. He would have taken care of me. Wish Absalom were king. To where he said, okay, I've got enough people. Send the messengers. Tell them I'm just going to anoint myself king. And this whole issue, it's not just about Absalom and David, or excuse me, it is about Absalom and David. And it's, it's literally the fulfillment of scripture, and I think I skipped a verse here. Verse 13 and 14, what happened was, word got to David, and David said, hey, you know what? Instead of fighting, instead of standing and saying, dude, I'm the king, let my son come. I don't... <laughs> what David said is, hey, round up the people in the palace, and we need to leave, because Absalom will kill every single person in the city trying to take the throne. And that's harsh, because one, it's great that David said, I'm not going to fight my son. I'd rather relinquish the throne than fight my son. But the other thing that's really harsh is because David said, I know how vindictive and angry my son can be. I know the extent that he's willing to go through to get what he wants. And I know that he will kill every single person in this city. I think the phrase he used was, put the city to the sword. Destroy the city to do it. Now, uh, spoiler alert, this ends with the uh, death of Absalom. We'll talk about that next week. Spoiler alert, not really a spoiler. It ends with Absalom sleeping with all of the concubines, not all, most of the concubines of David's wives on the roof just as God had predicted would happen, as a way to be a, you know, say, look, I'm so much better than my dad. But spoiler alert, it also ends with a family 
shattered because they couldn't be reconciled. And last time, when we talked about David's sin, here's the difference between David and Absalom, and I'm going to wrap this up in a few minutes. Uh, David sinned with Bathsheba. God said, hey, sword's never going to depart from your house. He said, hey, um, out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity, evil, and trials, and, and all this stuff on you. People say that's harsh, but again, it all started because of what David did, and it came from David's house. And he says, you know, these things are going to happen to your wives. You did it in secret. It's going to happen. And here's the difference between Absalom and David. David was confronted with his sin, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. He was willing to say, you know what? He, he had anger. He had some bitterness. But he was willing to say, you know what? I was wrong. This is my fault. I'll take responsibility for it. And a couple of weeks ago, we went through Psalm, I think it's Psalm 51, that starts with, you know, David wrote this psalm after he was confronted by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, where he just went on and on about, God, you are just in whatever judgment you give me. I have sinned against you. You are worthy of praise. You're the Holy One. You're righteous. I'm wrong. This is my fault. But that's not what Absalom did. He didn't acknowledge his sin. He didn't acknowledge that, hey, this is my fault, I'm the one wrong. In fact, what he did was what a lot of us do when we get into arguments and we mess up, he went and festered and just pouted and let it build up in him for three years while he was away. And then when he came home with the hope of maybe we can reconcile this and you know what, maybe I'll have to do some time or have to make things right, but I'll have to do something, there will be some consequences he wasn't even treated like family. And that festered. And that built up in him. And, and the fault, although yes, the fault, and we're going to close with this next couple of verses, belongs with Absalom. You know, he committed murder. There's also some fault that belongs with David because one of the things that we as Christ followers are supposed to do is we're supposed to help in that reconciliation process. When Paul writes his letter to the church in Corinth, and sometime next year we'll go through the book of uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore, if any person is ingrafted or in Christ the Messiah, he is a new creation. And this applies to David, because David didn't go out and say, hey, I sinned, I need to be forgiven, I'm going to go slaughter an animal, and then because of the slaughtering of the animal, the sins were covered with blood. David acknowledged his sin to Nathan and God. And Nathan advised him, hey, your sins are forgiven, not because of an animal that was slaughtered, but because of what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. And although they may not have a name or the title, they knew that God would remove his sins. And he says, anyone, you, me, anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old, the previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Fresh and new has come. So our sins have been atoned for. We've been made right. We're, we're able to stand now and be looked at as if we had never sinned because we have the righteousness of God. But that's not where it ends. Because of that, all things come from God who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
So he says, all things through Jesus Christ, he reconciled us to himself. He received us in the favor. He brought us into harmony with himself. No longer are we sinners. We're, we're looked at as, 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 as we have the potential to sin because we're human, but we're looked at as made right and just in the eyes of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So now we're in harmony with him. But then he gives us that ministry that by our words and our deeds, we bring others into harmony with David had a responsibility to say, hey, you know what? Let's go sit and have this father-son chat. Because I've messed up too. I've killed people too. I've did wrong mistakes too. I've sinned before God too. And yes, there are going to be some physical consequences to what you did. But if you ask God for forgiveness, he removes the spiritual consequences of an eternity separated from him. And when we see people in our, in our community or you see people on the news, and, I, and I'm hesitant to say this because I know how it might sound, but even when you see people who do these like unthinkable mass shootings and, and all this kind of stuff, our first instinct is good for them. They should be dead. They should be killed. They should get whatever they deserve. And God looks at us and says, that used to be you. You deserve death too. Maybe you think your sin wasn't as big as theirs, but in God's eyes, every sin deserves separation from God. And he looks at us and says, rather than you know, post as many comments as you can about how wrong they are, how bad they are, how messed up they are, are you looking for an opportunity to reconcile them to me? With our family members, with our coworkers, with our friends. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and allow God to maybe bring to mind someone who you know is kind of feeling out there on their own. Maybe it's because of a wrong they did. Maybe it's because of something they said. Maybe it's the coworker who no one wants to sit next to. Uh, maybe it's the coworker who is always messing up projects and no one wants to work with. Maybe it's the family member that no one wants to invite over. And that person probably has some anger and some frustration and some stuff that's festering in them. And as God, as you bring those people to mind, we pray that you would bring to mind constantly and regularly this verse to us, that we, if we are in Christ, that means we have been reconciled to you. And we have a responsibility to go reconcile with them as well to point them to you, to share the love of Christ with them, to be the one, maybe the only one, who comes over to them and says, hey, you may be hurt, you may be angry, you may be frustrated, you may be alone, but I'm here for you. And there's a God who loves you unconditionally and sent his son to die for you. God, we pray that you would allow us to be that voice that before we ridicule, before we condemn, before we judge, that we would share your love, that we would seek your face on how we can interact, that we would show the love of Christ. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen.